Well, if you were here last week, you know that um, I tried to jump in front of Kristen before she read the text to us. And uh, this week, it sounded like I was trying to start preaching from the front row. So you're probably thinking, Matt, just wait your turn, dude. Um, the, uh, the Bible's full of, of characters, individuals, lots of different personalities, historical men and women that are given to us in Scripture so that we can be edified by their story, by their speech, by the things that they did that were recorded in Scripture. And Scripture is shockingly honest surprisingly candid and transparent in all that it gives us. It gives us the successes and screw-ups of uh, these individuals that we read about week after week. It gives us the triumphs and the failures. And we're tempted to take those and moralize those examples and, and see these characters as sort of case studies for how to live the Christian life. I mean, this is even how we teach our kids to study the Bible. If you think about vacation Bible school or Sunday school, if you can remember that far back for when you were in those classes, uh, we teach a story to the kids, uh, an individual that does something, and then we draw out truth from that story that they can apply to their young lives. And I'm not knocking this method. Uh, it, is a, it is an okay way to study Scripture. It's not wrong necessarily. The Scriptures give us these men and women so that we can learn from them. They're recorded for us in God's Word. We're to apply the narratives of Scripture in a way that we can say, it, it seems clear to me that the Bible's trying to instruct me to live like this guy and not like this guy, or like this woman's example and not like this woman's example. Uh, that's in Scripture, and that method of study is, is okay, but it's not good enough. And it's not the, the only way that we should study Scripture. The problem with doing this, or with only studying Scripture, looking for these narratives, these individuals, and then patterning our lives after them, is that we can become so fixed on an example or a role model from Scripture that we're uh, particularly drawn to that we miss Christ himself. And the power of Christ, the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, that enables us to live obediently to the Word of God. And, uh, and this example is not just a temptation for us. We know through Scripture that the, uh, that the Corinthian church was doing this exact same thing as early as the ministry of Paul. Uh, Paul writes a letter back to the Corinthian church, the same Corinthian church that we saw him uh, establish and plant last week in the text that we were in, in, in the first part of chapter 18. And as Paul writes back to those Christians in Corinth, uh, the letters in your Bible, it's 1 Corinthians, uh, there's a faction that's arisen in the church. And Paul um, comes back, he hears about this, and he writes and he confronts them on this, that, that these individuals in Corinth were following men, even, even men that would, that would be God-honoring men, faithful men, but they were, they were missing Christ. And so this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, you can if you'd like. Um, but 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11 Paul says this to the Corinthian church. He says, For it's been reported to me by Chloe that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is this, that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? Now I want to pump the brakes here for a minute because something should catch our attention as we hear, one, the problem, what they're doing in, in structuring their lives, claiming almost proudly, I follow this guy, or I follow this guy. But even more than that, the faction that arose among these folks is because they were following four different men. And some of them probably sounded familiar to you. Paul, this one's obvious. As we've been studying through the book of Acts, he's, he's certainly a central character, uh, he's the arch enemy of the church, or the arch enemy of Christ, Saul, who's radically saved as he's on his way to Damascus to persecute, kill, throw in prison more Christians. 
And he, he himself meets Jesus. His life is changed as he becomes a follower of Jesus. And then he becomes a missionary, and he starts the church in Corinth. And so um, this one is, is, is a little bit, we can see this one, right? He's the guy that first preached the gospel to these folks in Corinth. He's their founding pastor. We can see how some of them might get hung up on following Paul, even at the cost of disunity. But then there's Cephas. And uh, this is actually Peter, the disciple of Jesus. And the Bible calls him three different names, Simon, Peter, and Cephas. And we can see maybe how the Corinthians would get distracted and then start a Peter faction. Right? He, he, uh, he's one of Jesus' closest friends while Jesus is walking on the earth. He's, he's like the right-hand man to Jesus. He's doing some incredible miracles at the beginning of the book of Acts as the Holy Spirit comes and, and he's one of the apostles. So it's, it's easier to see that. And then you have Christ, which at first seems like if, if you're going to be in a faction, this is the one you want to be in, right? Like, yes, we want to follow Jesus. That's the right thing to do. But we certainly don't want to reduce Jesus down to just a, a moralistic or, or ethical example for us to pattern our lives after, as, as if he just did some good things that we should also attempt to do. And we certainly don't want to create disunity over claiming the higher ground, like I'm a follower of Christ, and so obviously you are not a follower of Christ. But then there's this other guy, and his name's Apollos. Who is this guy? You read through this in, in 1 Corinthians, and, and how in the world does this guy, Apollos, gain enough ground that he would have been grouped in, in Corinth? There was a whole group of people saying, proudly saying, boldly saying, I follow Apollos. So how in the world does this guy, above and against the mighty preacher and apostle Peter, have a following? Or, or above and against their founding pastor, uh, for many of them, their, their spiritual father, their father in the faith, Paul, how does this guy get a following? Or, or even Christ himself. That you would say, I'm a, I'm a follower of Apollos. Who is this guy and why is he so important? What does scripture tell us about him? The reality is not very much. In all of the Bible, less than 10 verses of scripture mention this gentleman. And so if he had such an impact on the Corinthian church, and he shows up in our text in, in Acts chapter 18 this morning, let's lean in and see what we can learn about this gentleman Apollos. If you look with me, we'll jump back up to chapter 18 where we left off last week. Chapter 18, we'll start in verse 24. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So what do we learn about Apollos? What is God teaching us by including this bit of biography in the text of Scripture, in Acts? Four points this morning that we'll draw out of the text. I'll give them to you from the start. They're this. We see the good. We see the bad. We see the correction. And we see the accomplishment. So the good, the bad, the correction, and the accomplishment. The first, the good. Verse 24, we see that he's a Jew. But he's a Jew with a Greek name, Apollos. He's a native of Alexandria. Now, a little bit of background about Alexandria. This is important for us in understanding who Apollos is or was. Alexandria was the seedbed of Hellenistic Judaism. What I mean by that are Greek folks, Greek background folks, uh, that are converting to Judaism or following Yahweh, the God of Israel. Remember the library in Alexandria? If you've ever studied much in world history, you know there was a great library in Alexandria that burned with thousands of works of, of literature and philosophy. Well, those works were in Alexandria because it was the center of, uh, of Platonic thought, of Greek philosophy. 
Alexandria is in northern Egypt, and it was surrounded by thinkers and philosophers um, and, and, and educators and teachers. And that's Apollos. He's an educated, intellectual guy, well-spoken man that at some point in his life, we're not sure when, adopted the Jewish faith, began to follow Yahweh, the, the God of Israel. And he travels to Ephesus. Notice also in verse 24, we learn a little bit more about Apollos. It says that he's an eloquent man. This means he's a, he's a trained speaker, a trained orator. He could stand in front of people and speak, and, and they would listen. They would engage in what he's saying. They would be convinced by his speaking. He would inspire people with his words. He would motivate people with his voice. In our world today, there's, there's a lot of things. I think especially men would desire to have described their lives, adjectives that they would want used about their lives, maybe powerful, bold, successful, fearless, honest, full of integrity, diligent. But eloquence is probably not the first word on anyone's list today. But in this day, in Paul's day, in a culture where the entertainment industry was speech, remember there's no movies, radio, internet to be on in this day, Eloquence was something that was very desirable. It was a trait that you sought after. It was something that you wanted to have so that you could engage your culture. And eloquence was what this man is characterized by. It was an attractive thing. But note, too, in verse 24, he was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. His eloquence was directed toward the Word of God, the Old Testament Scriptures in particular. He was able to explain and interpret the scriptures in a convincing way. He was competent. He knew the Bible. He was skillful in explaining the Bible. He was a scholar of the Old Testament. And he was good at talking about it in such a way that people wanted to listen. And so even though we don't have a lot of verses about Apollos, what we already discover is significant. You can imagine if you're a a committee at a church looking for a new pastor, maybe in Ephesus or in Corinth, Apollos has a lot to offer. You can hardly imagine a better cover letter for his resume. Birthplace, Alexandria. Education, also Alexandria. He's eloquent. He's able to speak well, and he knows the Bible really well. Things are looking really good for Apollos. Any pulpit committee would be instantly interested in this guy. But wait, there's more. Verse 25 says he's been instructed in the way of the Lord. This means he was taught the gospel. This means he knew who Jesus was, what Jesus did, and why any of that mattered. This is huge. Because what we're finding out about Apollos is that he's uniquely gifted to bring all of this together. His background as a a Greek person and as a converted Jewish person allowed him to bridge the gap between these two cultures. He He could go into a room and mix with either group, with Greeks or with Jews. He was right at home. He's a Jew with the name of a Greek god for his name. He's certainly able to mix in those cultures. His eloquence, his knowledge of the scriptures, his understanding of Jesus, he has the unique opportunity and ability to to proclaim Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures about a Messiah, the hope and the promise of Israel. He can connect that to Jesus. Our description continues, though. Look at verse 25. It says, And being fervent in spirit. You see what we learn here, right? To be around this guy, you would immediately recognize his passion and excitement for God. It was obvious. This dude loved the Lord. You're not around him for any amount of time without knowing about it because you, you're told by him. He tells you about Jesus. He's fervent in spirit. What a model for ministry. Someone to, to follow after. It's this kind of guy. Yeah, it's important to have the skills, to, to have the training, to have the God-given things like eloquence. 
but you also want to see fire in his bones. You want to see a man who's fired up for the Lord, a passion that, that, he's given, that he has to, to proclaim the gospel, to see the gospel advance. And that's this guy. He's fervent in spirit. Verse 25, if you continue, it says he spoke and taught accurately concerning the things of Jesus. His resume just continues to get better and better. Why? Because there's a lot of trained, eloquent speaking, competent in scripture and in knowledge, fired up, fire in their bones type of folks that still miss the truth concerning Jesus. People that will stand and speak convincingly, but either fail to mention Jesus at all, or at least reduce him down, minimize Jesus by watering him down to nothing but moralism or, or behavior modification, that he provides for us a good example. Not Apollos. He gets it right concerning Jesus. And this is no small thing, church. Here's a bit of application for us. May we all aspire that this could be said of us, each of us, that we spoke truthfully, we spoke rightly concerning Jesus. You say, well, Matt, I'm, I'm not a preacher or teacher, so why would, why would that need to be said of me? When you speak to your kids, that you would speak to them rightly concerning Jesus. When you speak to your coworkers, that you would speak to them rightly concerning Jesus. When you speak to the attendant at the movie theater taking your tickets, that you would speak rightly with them concerning the things of Jesus. Friends, don't let the scriptures pass over you this morning because you think that it's for preachers or teachers. This is for all of us, that we would be the type of folks that it would be said of us. There's a fire in our bones, a passion to talk about Jesus. And when we open our mouths and talk about him, it's actually true. It's right. It's biblically sound. So thinking what we've learned so far, just a few words are given to us here in Acts that introduce us to Apollos. But what we see is, is a man that we would immediately admire. He speaks. We would want to listen. And for good reason. Additionally, of the other eight places that his name shows up in the Bible, not one time are we given text of Scripture that gives us a negative assessment uh, or a mark against this man's character or his integrity. At any of our seminaries, this brother would be a standout student. I mean, he would be the, the, the top on a stack of resumes for any church that's looking for a, a preacher, teacher that would preach the Bible and, and stand on the Word of God. That's this guy. Doctrinally sound, his integrity is unmarred, his giftedness is obvious, his personality is contagious. He was the number one five-star recruit, and he's a stud. And that's the good. But if you were paying attention when I gave you the outline, I said that there's also some bad. Coming up, we continue with me in the text. What could possibly be wrong with a guy like Apollos? Well, verse 25, it says, He spoke and taught accurately concerning the things of Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Rutrow, Houston, we have a problem. We have an eloquent, gifted, educated, motivated, uh, passionate preacher that preaches Jesus accurately, but he only knows about the baptism of John. That's a big problem. He said, well, Matt, why is that a big problem? Well, the writer of Acts is intentional to mention it to us, that Apollos only knew the baptism of John, and so he's pointing out something to us. There's a truth here for us to know and discover in the text of Scripture. So let me remind you about what John is, is doing, John the Baptist in the Gospels. People would come to him out of, out of the world, out of worldliness, out of sin. They would repent and they would be baptized as a follower of Yahweh, looking for the Messiah, the one that would come and take away the sin of Israel, which is what John the Baptist is preaching about. But that's the only thing that Apollos knew about baptism. And that's very different from what we've seen in Acts so far. That's very different from what we say about baptism today. Why? Because baptism in Acts... And in every church since then that practices biblical baptism is new covenant baptism. 
It's a practice that Jesus, Jesus himself commanded, established, and, and, and insisted that the church do before he ascends to heaven, after he's resurrected. Well, why is this significant? Why would the scriptures present this as the one negative strike against Apollos? Well, Matthew chapter 28, 19, we learn that through baptism, the triune God places his name on his people. That it's the act of baptism that vividly demonstrates our union with Christ. That, that we've died to our old selves, we've been resurrected, and we have life in Christ. This is Romans 6, Galatians chapter 3. And so it seems that Apollos knew the gospel. There's some debate about this too, by the way. If you read different commentaries or study Bibles, there's some scholars that will debate whether Apollos was saved at this point or whether he gets saved through this. I have reasons to think he's already been born again. He, he knows the gospel, but the scriptures still suggest to us that this is a big deal, that he didn't know anything about this command from Jesus. He knew nothing of the use of water and baptism that preaches the gospel for us. And here, here's, the, here's the takeaway. Here's the application for us. He may have been the most eloquent preacher. He, he may have been the best speaker in that day, but even his best sermon could not do what baptism does. Baptism preaches the gospel to our eyes that we can see what Jesus has done for us, that we've died to our old self and we've been raised to new life. This is the clearest picture we have of someone saying, I'm done. The old man is dead. I'm a new person in Jesus. That's what we see every time someone goes under those waters. And that's what he's missing. That's why Jesus commanded it. It's an important thing. And Apollos is missing it. You say, well, Matt, this seems like you're kind of being a bit harsh here. Apollos had so much going for him. Is that really that big of a deal? Is it really that significant? I mean, having a different understanding of baptism. If your salvation doesn't depend on it, which is what we would say, this is what we believe, that, that we're saved by grace through faith alone, that it's not our baptism that saves us, nor anything else we could do that would save us. It's grace alone, his death upon the cross. Then why is this really that important? Well, it comes up again. Let's continue reading. If you skip down with me to chapter 19, verse 1, it comes up twice in this narrative with Apollo, so I think it's significant for us. Let's, let's lean in here in chapter 19, verse 1. It says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. So they're kind of swapping places if you see that in the text. And when he found some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have, we've not even heard of that there's a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So this is huge, church family. And I'm, I'm not trying to connect Apollos here to the source of their problem in Ephesus, suggesting that it was, that it was Apollos' error. He's the false teacher here. He's the one that's led these folks astray. I, I'm not saying that because the Scriptures don't say that. But I do find it interesting that Paul is in Ephesus, and the Scripture has been clear to show us that Apollos had also been there. Either way, though, their error is at a minimum similar and connected. You have disciples, or at least that's what the text calls them, yet they're not true born-again followers of Jesus. They're followers of God. They desire to follow Yahweh, the God of Israel. But these are 12 almost Christians, as Alistair Begg calls them in his commentary on this. The difference is, Apollos taught accurately concerning the things of Jesus. He was fervent in spirit. I think evidence for us to believe that he'd been genuinely converted. These disciples in Ephesus, however, did not have the Holy Spirit. At least when Paul shows up, they didn't. 
And they ultimately, we, we, we know that that's how we can determine real Christians then, in that day, and in ours. Romans 8, verse 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. That's what Paul says in Romans. And it's the same for us today. The presence of the Holy Spirit. Is that person filled with the Holy Spirit? Are they uh, convicted when they sin? Do they, do they walk with the Lord? And if they stray from the Lord, if they walk away from the Lord, do they feel no drawing back to Him? Are they able to live in sin without feeling guilt and shame? If we have the Holy Spirit present in us, we'll feel remorse, we'll feel guilt, we'll feel shame when we sin, and we'll run to the Lord in repentance. And Paul shows up here, and there is no presence of the Holy Spirit in this, folks. In fact, verse 2, it says they've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. What are you even talking about? We've never even heard teaching like this. And this shouldn't be shocking to us, right? If Apollos... If Apollos is the common denominator here, and he's been their teacher, it's not coincidence that he knew nothing of Jesus' teaching on baptism. And, and, and as well, they're still being baptized in John's name, and they knew nothing of the teaching on the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives us. Especially in places like Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. They've never heard any of this. John Stott helpfully summarizes. He says this, In a word, these folks were still living in the Old Testament which had culminated in John the Baptist. They understood neither that this new age had been ushered in by Jesus, nor that those who believe in him and are baptized into him receive the distinct blessing of the new age, namely the Holy Spirit. And so Paul explains the gospel to them. And they believe, by the grace of God, they're baptized and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of them. And so what do we take away from this, church family? How do we begin to apply a text like this? Well, first... Often religious people, like these disciples, that's what the text calls them, are unconverted peoples. That, that, that even people that would attend Christian religious events or church service can't even articulate the basic truths of the gospel. That there are people that claim to be followers of Jesus but have no signs, no evidence of having a new heart, of having the Holy Spirit living in them. And that's why we must proclaim the gospel to all types of people, even religious people, even folks that would claim to know Jesus. They may have no power, no, no working in their heart because they've never been born again. Second thing I think we can take away from this is that we don't just stumble into the gospel, right? Like you see this in this text. These were sincere folks. They were disciples. They sought after God. They wanted to walk with the Lord, even called them disciples. They were, they were sincere and genuine, yet it was impossible for them to do that because they'd not heard or believed the gospel. It had never been explained to them in its entirety. They heard parts of it, but they didn't know Jesus. They didn't know that Jesus came as that Messiah that John was promising about. Listen, church family, God loves you is not good enough uh, for a person to be born again. God loves you is a true statement, but it's not enough gospel truth for a person to be born again. What God? What God loves me? In what way does he love me? How will my sin be dealt with? What's going on with my punishment and my rebellion against God? How is that removed? An incomplete gospel is no gospel at all. It's only half truth that can confuse folks from thinking that they're actually born again. We must be clear in our articulation of the gospel. The whole gospel. Third thing, I think we see a very clear pattern here. They were given this pattern over and over and over in the book of Acts because it is important and it's significant. And here's that pattern. That the true gospel of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection is proclaimed, 
People believe and repent of their sins and they're converted. They're given a new heart, new birth happens, and then they're baptized and dwell by the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in their heart. That's the pattern that we see. And so baptism then is the visible profession of their faith in Jesus. Baptism is that announcement that this person has, uh, in fact, given their life to Christ, that Christ has come inside by the power of his spirit and now occupies the throne of their heart. And so when we emphasize baptism, we make a big deal out of it because the Bible makes a big deal out of it. How many weeks now, church family, have we seen that this idea comes up again and again and again? They believed and were baptized. It's a common problem between Apollos and this church in Ephesus. And so Luke, the writer of Acts, is careful to point it out for us in in both cases. And so the application for some of us here, church family, might be just this. You need to get your baptism in order. Maybe you are born again. Maybe you have, have repented of your sins and you're following Christ, but, but your baptism's not in order. Maybe you were baptized as a baby, and it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with, with your profession. It's just something that was done for you because mom and dad chose to do it. Follow the biblical pattern we see in Scripture. Follow with believer's baptism. All right, so we've seen the good. We've seen the qualities in Apollos that are admirable. We've seen the bad, the one strike that the text gives us against him, and it's the problem that he had in his thinking with understanding baptism and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But there's another movement in our text, and we need to see this. To get it, we need to go back up to chapter 18. Look at verse 26. Chapter 18 in in verse 26, we see the correction. Verse 26, he, and it's talking about Apollos now. We've jumped back from Paul's ministry to Apollos' ministry. He, Apollos, began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now here, church family, it's Priscilla and Aquila that provide a good model for us. If we're we're learning from the scriptures this morning, it's, it's their behavior in these verses that are helpful. They show us how to handle disagreements. More specifically, they show us how someone should be corrected or confronted in the body of Christ. Whether they're wrong in their thinking, whether they have defective theology, whether they have misinformed teaching or sinful behavior, Priscilla and Aquila here give us a biblical picture for how to deal with it. Notice that they don't rebuke him publicly. They they don't embarrass him or shame him. They demonstrate humility and compassion. And yet, in addressing him, they demonstrate conviction. That all three of those are there. they, They didn't just let it go and sweep it under the rug so they didn't have to confront him. Like, I don't want to deal with that. We'll just hope it goes away and somebody tells him along the way that he's, he's wrong. Sweep this under the rug and not deal with it right now. Instead, they go and confront him in a way that honors Christ. Verse 26, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. This taking him aside, I like the picture maybe even in their home. Like they just had him over. They took him aside. They went in and it's not a hostile accusation, but a, a warm, hospitable reception. And they begin to gently explain baptism more fully to him here's where you've missed it here's the part of the story that you've not connected and the church must listen church family we must learn to do this and do it actually do it faithfully and there here are two ends of the spectrum church family and 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 this happens in our church i'm not talking about the church out there like large c church universal i'm talking about in poplar spring baptist church i've seen these two ends of the spectrum on the one hand we have folks that'll say you know what i'm just going to ignore it I'm so non-confrontational. I don't want to. I don't want to bring it up. It may be awkward. It may, may make things weird for our families. And so, I, instead of walking humbly and with our brother and sister, we're just completely comfortable with letting it go and letting sin remain. That's one end of the spectrum. 
On the other end of the spectrum is the person that comes in like a bull in a china cabinet, uh, like, like the battering ram. And they're going to tell them the truth, and it may be truth, but they're going to tell them the truth, and it doesn't matter how it comes across. It doesn't matter how it's communicated. They need to hear the truth, and it doesn't matter how it's spoken. Paul writes back to the church in Ephesus. He tells them how this kind of thing should be done. And it looks a whole lot like what Priscilla and Aquila are doing. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul writing back to this very church in Ephesus, he says this, rather, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Some of us, church family, are all truth. All truth, and there is no love in how we say it, which really shows that we don't even understand the truth. Because the truth, the scripture, has just said that to share the truth, you are to do it in love. On the other hand, there are some of us who are all love, and I'm using air quotes, quote-unquote love, but there's no willingness to speak truth. Which, in fact, shows that we're not loving at all. Because if you think about it, church family... You could spare someone misery and pain, perhaps years of suffering by helping them to see their sin, and yet you keep your mouth shut. That doesn't look like love. That actually looks more like hatred. That that you could have done something, that you could have done something to spare them pain, but yet you watched as they ran toward it? That's not love. We have to speak the truth. We have to call sin, sin, but we do it in love. We do it with tear-filled eyes and a heavy heart. We do it full of grace and compassion. Brother, I don't believe this is God's best for you. Sister, this, this looks a whole lot like destruction that you're running to. Would you just consider that this might not be the best, best thing? We shouldn't try to correct brothers and sisters with an argumentative or critical spirit, rather with an open Bible and a loving tone. And that's what we see our brother and sister Aquila and Priscilla here. They're ones that counted the cost. We're willing to go and confront, but we're going to do it in love. We're going to do it in a way that's edifying and encouraging. And so we we learn from them. But notice, we can also learn from Apollos here, right? Don't miss this, that this guy probably had far more education and training than Aquila and Priscilla combined. He certainly came from a more elite stock in Alexandria. He'd been around these thinkers and these gifted intellectuals. He had a a knowledge, and, and he was good at explaining the Bible. He was a powerful and publicly known exegete of Scripture. That's what his reputation was. He was an eloquent explainer of the Word, of Scripture. And yet here, when these brothers, this brother and sister come to him, he maintains a teachable spirit. He doesn't get riled up. He doesn't lash out at them. He listens to their counsel and their position. He hears them out. And it looks like from the rest of this text that that he's won over because they recommend him highly when he wants to leave. What about you, friend? Are you teachable? Do you have this kind of spirit that if someone comes to you and and they bring up a problem, they they see something in your life and they want to discuss it, how how would you respond? Do Do you get defensive? Do you try to win them over to your argument? Let me show you why I'm right. I hear you. I'm not really hearing you. But I want to convince you that I'm right. Are we teachable? Are we humble in our spirit? Would we hear correction when someone comes to us with a broken heart? Wanting to help us see the scriptures more clearly. It takes a lot of humility, but let's be teachable people. No matter how long we've been a Christian or how long they've been a Christian... No matter that I have more kids and I've been a parent longer than you have or I've been married longer than you have, I think I have this a little bit better figured out than you. Let's be humble and teachable people and take correction for our good and ultimately for the glory of God. I have one final observation in the text this morning. 
And that's the accomplishment. This morning we've learned from good and bad examples in Apollos. We've learned uh, from, from a model from, from Aquila and Priscilla that God provides us for how to confront a brother or sister in Christ. We've learned from Paul's ministry in Ephesus as he teaches. For this last point, though, we see the same result in Apollos' ministry in Corinth and Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And so let's take them in that order. 18, chapter 18, verses 27 and 28, we see Paulus's, the results of Paulus's ministry there. Look at verse 27. And when he, Apollos, wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. And let's skip down to chapter 19, verse 8. We'll see the results of Paul's ministry there in Ephesus. And he, Paul, entered the synagogue for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. I started out this morning by reading to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul rebukes the church in Corinth for the factions that had uh, developed among them in the church in Corinth. Remember, the you're following Peter, and you say you follow Christ, and some of you say you follow Paul, and some of you say you follow Apollos. That's not the only time that Paul speaks that way in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you skip down to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, just two chapters later, Paul goes on to say, and it sounds very similar, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Here's what Paul's saying. There are some examples in Scripture for you to follow. For you to see some noteworthy things, some laboring in the word and ministry that are, that are admirable. And sure, Apollos watered. Sure, I planted the gospel among you and he watered by faithfully teaching and preaching the word. But in the midst of this example following, don't think for a second that either of us affected the growth. Only God brings about growth. Only God accomplished and brought about fruit in your lives. So if you're born again, if you're walking with God, if you've been baptized, if you've received the Holy Spirit, don't get it twisted, church in Corinth. It's not me. It's not Apollos. It's God that did that work. So glory to God alone. Apollos and I are co-workers, but but Paul assigns all glory to God, not the messengers. And so how do we take a text like this and apply it and learn from it? Live out that application in our life today, church. Well, first, if you are saved, if you've been born again, if you've received new birth, then rejoice in the Lord, the author and finisher of your salvation. You did nothing to earn it. You did nothing to deserve it. You did nothing to cause it. Even the, the effect of, 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 of where you were born or in when and what time period you were born so that you would have the opportunity to hear the gospel. God did all of that. He did all of that. So rejoice in your salvation. That God is the one that brings about growth. That it's him that moves and shapes and brings about faith in our hearts. If you're not saved today, the flip side of that coin is this. It's not chance or coincidence that you're here today. 
That, that you're in this room with an opportunity to hear the gospel and believe. God brought you to this place. And he may have used someone or some ulterior motive. Maybe you thought, hey, I'll show up to church today. It'll win me some brownie points with God. And maybe I'll get that promotion at work. Or maybe that coworker's cubicle will get moved and I don't have to deal with them anymore. And so maybe the day for you was just sort of a, a, a chess match or a poker game with God where you thought, hey, maybe he'll, maybe he'll do, do me a favor if I do him one and show up at church today. And yet in the midst of all of that, he brought you to a place so that you could hear Christ died on the cross for you. And in him dying on the cross for you, he was taking your punishment. He was taking your rebellion. He was taking your sin in and on himself and dying in your place so that you could get righteousness and eternal life and freedom that was rightfully his. That's the beautiful exchange we see in the gospel. And so if you're not born again today, believe the truth of the gospel. Repent of your sins and follow Christ. The promise of scripture is that you'll be saved. Second application that I think we see here. And this is kind of all over this text, and it's where we started this morning. Let's honor faithful teachers of the word. Let's honor faithful Christians that went before us, maybe missionaries or preachers that we look back on and we hear their story. Maybe we read a biography and we're just enamored with the way that God used it. Let's, let's give honor where honor's due, but let's not deify folks. I think that's what we see in, in Paul writing back to the Corinthians. And if you don't think that happens, just listen to the way folks talk about their, their favorite authors or preachers or teachers or whatever the case may be. Listen to the way some folks talk about their childhood pastor. Maybe their Apollos. Maybe the guy that started the church that they were in as a kid or the guy, the guy that led them to the Lord. And then he went on to a, a different church in a different state. And if only we had him back, right? Let's not deify those guys, but give honor where honors due those ladies that labored and that we saw their fruit. Let's give honor where honor's due. Paul writes to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Then he turns around in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21, and says, let no one boast in human leaders. Why is it that Paul would emphasize this? Why is it that, this is the same letter. This is one letter that Paul's writing back to the church in Corinth. And within, within, just within a chapter, he said it twice. Is it that Paul was jealous? Apollos comes in after him, and, 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 he, and he leads the church, and maybe they experience more success, and, and Apollos gets a greater following than Paul did, and maybe he's a bit jealous. No. Paul's writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because he knows that it's a temptation for you and me today in 2019 to look at men or women around us and elevate them to a place, to put them on, on a throne in our hearts that only the Lord Jesus Christ deserves. Your husband doesn't occupy that throne in your heart. Your kids shouldn't occupy that throne in your hearts. Your favorite podcast preacher shouldn't occupy that place in your heart. Only Christ alone. And so in conclusion, what we see here at the end of chapter 18 and the beginning of chapter 19 is Luke is writing, and there's a range of people in a lot of different places that we meet, a lot of different places spiritually. And that's not unlike what we see here today or any given Sunday at Poplar Spring. There's some people that knew Christ, they simply needed encouragement and reinforcement, which is what we saw Paul doing in verse 23 as he travels back through some of these places where he's already been and he's strengthening the churches. We see others that are genuine Christians, but they lack doctrinal clarity on a particular matter. This is what I believe Apollos was. Then we see others that are religious, even disciples, faithful folks, sincere folks, but their understanding of the gospel is completely lacking. These are these 12 disciples that Paul teaches in Ephesus. And then we have some that hear the gospel and they refuse to believe, which is what we see with the unbelieving Jews in chapter 19, verse 9. And here's the thing, church. 
regardless of, of where those folks are at, those categories of folks that are all across the spectrum spiritually, the good news is that the gospel, the good news, is the remedy, is the fix for each one of those people to believe upon Christ. And it's also the answer for us today. Would you give your life to him? Believer or non-believer, today, commit your life to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it hits us right where we're at. We pray that it, that it does this morning. We know that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it has the ability to, to cut and divide. And we pray that our hearts would be fertile and receptive soil this morning, that your, the truth of your word would convict us, maybe in how to live out the Christian life, maybe in priorities that are misplaced, maybe in something you've been leading us to do for a while and, and we've sat on it. And God, we also praise you that your word, by the power of your spirit, has the ability to bring dead hearts and illuminate the light of the gospel in such a way that we would, by faith, repent and believe the good news. So God, we pray that your word would be effective in that as well this morning, that if there's one here today that's never trusted Christ, they would see the gospel, the good news of Jesus, as the best thing that they've ever heard. So God, would you be with us as we respond, as we have an opportunity to sing and pray and confess and rejoice that our hearts would be obedient all over this room, that we would be obedient. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. <laughs>